0: For leading us in those songs of worship and good morning, everyone. And as I listen to those prayer requests, there's a lot of pain in this world, isn't there? There's a lot of trouble, there's a lot of heartache in that last song we just sang. There's even pain in heaven when God the Father sent His Son to redeem us. But there's also new life, isn't there? Um, Daniel, can you uh, hold up our newest arrival, Lucas? I didn't know he was here this morning. He happens to be my uh, grandson, just saying, and that makes number 19, so we're taking over the world. Um, Anyway, so welcome to him. Very thankful. In Sunday school this morning, uh, David as he led our class in Ezekiel chapter 13. Those chapters that we dealt with, 13 through 17, they're, they're troubling in many different ways. But one of the things that, that he brought out was how these false prophets, speaking the word, claiming that God has said it, when he actually hasn't is a very dangerous thing. And I think of that every time I begin to prayer a message or anything like that. It's to give us pause. So this morning, I was telling Ruth earlier this morning, I said, I'm not even sure I agree with some of what I'm going (laughs) to say. Sometimes that's the way it is. So um, I hope that what we talk about this morning, it will stimulate your thinking and it probably will stimulate some discussion, which is fantastic. So uh, bear with me, and may the Lord bless what we hear this morning. May it bring honor and glory to Him. Could you put that... Okay, the title of the message this morning is Shamrock's Eggs and H2O. And what I'd like for us to do is the 2 Corinthians thirteen fourteen. Do you have that verse? Okay, what I'd like for us to do, let's read this verse together. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of this Holy Spirit be with you all. Paul ends his second letter to the church at Corinth with this salutation. These are the last words of the second letter that he wrote to them. That declaration there... is a cosmic declaration that came from heaven to earth. That changes everything right there. We're going to talk about that this morning. Two weeks ago, we spent the morning digging into the subject of worship and the importance of guarding our steps and our mouths as we enter before God and worship. We looked at Ecclesiastes chapter five, verses one through seven. It also happened to be Trinity Sunday. And when I saw that on the calendar, Jim puts out our preaching schedule calendar, and on there, on that calendar, it was written Trinity Sunday, and I thought, perfect, that's a good time to delve into that. We never got there. And I noticed that Sunday that Nancy had on the front of the bulletin, if you have it, you can look at that, this little symbol. She still has that up there. Thank you, Nancy. It's Perfect. This morning, we're going to kind of talk about the Trinity and why it's so important. But when we think about worship, when we think about Trinity, who is this God that we are to worship, and why is it so important that we have a proper understanding of who He is? It is critical to our salvation. Many times people are asked the question, and we've probably asked it ourselves, do you believe in God? It's a very good question. 81%, this is just last year, 81% of American adults say yes. They believe in God. Great. Of those who say they believe in God, just over half believe in the God as the Bible describes Him. That tells us that almost half believe in some other form of, some other type of God or some other being or something. But what's even more troubling is the fact that a very much smaller group of people believe that God is in control of the events of their lives. Essentially, we know that many people want a God that they can manage. He's available when we need Him. We can kind of keep Him in our pocket and we get into a bind. We can pull Him out and call on Him and He'll do something for us. But otherwise he just kind of stays out of sight and out of mind and we like it that way. Many people like it that way. Non-interfering. And I thought of this morning of our cat. Some of you know our cat. I'm a cat lover, right? But Target is my favorite cat. Anyway, every morning when I walk out, it, I, for some reason I've, Taking up the, the job of feeding him generally. But every time I go out, he jumps up from wherever he is and he heads out. But he always, he'll always run right in front of me and almost trip me. I have every opportunity every morning to just kick him. I don't. Sometimes I'll shuffle him off and I'll talk to him. He's deaf. He can't hear, but which is probably well. Target, what are you doing? You're, you're going to trip me up. Some people look at God that way. He's just—he he interferes with life. We don't want that. All religions have their own concept of what God is. All throughout human history, mankind has worshipped something—something something greater than themselves. And as we we study about the the ancient Israelites, you know they they worship all these nations worship all kinds of things. Things that they cannot control. Therefore, they worship the sun, the moon, lightning, thunder, so on. But it's interesting, in these last days, the worship of self is paramount. In fact, the worship of other things or self, it's essentially the same. In that, how does this thing, this object, this person, this being... How does it affect me? It's all about me. What I want, what pleases me, what fulfills me, because I am paramount. There's nothing else that really matters. It's all me-centered. And we see it emblazoned in this month of June with a display of every pl- pride flag, which is a colorful declaration that simply says I am God and there is no other. And I want you to say it, to believe it, to promote it, and if you don't like it, you better start. You know, it's interesting. Satan at uh, at one point in history, he said, I will be like God. He understood that he couldn't be God, but maybe I can be like Him. We don't even do that anymore, Most a lot of people. No, I will be God. So in our modern, enlightened, our superior scientific knowledge, we sneer at the very idea that we would worship anything. We don't worship anything. How deceived we are. So of all those religions in the world, and we, we talk about secularism, you've heard that word. Secularism is a religion. It's a belief system. You just place yourself as God. But of all the religions in the world, Christianity is unique. Michael Reeves, who wrote a little book, Delighting in the Trinity, a fantastic little book. It might be in our library. And I'm using a lot of his thoughts, ideas this morning. But what makes Christianity absolutely distinct is the identity of our God. Which God we worship. That is the article of faith that stands before all others. Who is the God that we worship changes everything. Christianity's sole focus is on the God that we follow, and it's not to be on the we that our God is to follow. We are made in the image of God, and not as many would like to think that we make God in the image that we want Him to be. So, this morning, who is this God really? We just sang, Oh God, you are my God. Who is that? Well, let's look at that. Scripture begins with the very assumption that God exists. It doesn't start in Genesis by trying to tell us who he is and, and convince us that this God, this being exists. It's, there's just this assumption in the beginning God, boom, there he is. No argument that's just the way it is there is never an attempt to try to prove his existence and we know as we read through the scripture we have all these attributes of god these characteristics that describe and and this is one of the things i struggled with a characteristic or an attribute that it describes not so much of what he is like but who he is let me explain jesus On many occasions, he said, the kingdom of heaven is like, one of those is a mustard seed. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed. We know that parable. What he wasn't saying is the kingdom of heaven is full of mustard seeds. That's not what he was saying. There's nothing about the kingdom of God that has anything to do with mustard seeds except As we think about the mustard seed and how it's this very small thing and it grows, so the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed. So the attributes of God—they're characteristics that tell us who He is, but it also tell—they also tell us what He is like. Here's a list of some of them: He is eternal. He's faithful. He's good. He's holy. He's immutable, which means He's unchangeable. He's impartial. Impartial. He's incomprehensible. He's infinite. He's jealous. He's justice. He's long-suffering. He's love. He's mercy. He's omnipotent. He's omnipresent. He's omniscient. He's righteous. He's self-existent, self-sufficient, sovereign, transcendent, truth, wise, wrath. And you could go on and on. You know, I have attributes as well. I'm tall. I'm handsome. I'm smart. I'm immensely patient. I'm slightly porky, but you get the idea, all right? But that's not who I am, really. It's not the core of my being. So, what is God at His core? Who is he in his the very essence of God? Who is he? One of his attributes is that he cannot lie. I can. As some of you might just have said you just did. The slightly porky part. The only way you can know who I really am is by watching me, observing me, hearing me, knowing me, and how I operate. Ruth probably wouldn't say that I'm immensely patient. But she would tell you I'm very handsome. I'm sure of that. I hope. I'll find out later. <laughs> I can tell you that I'm faithful. But the only way for you to know that for sure is to observe me, to know if I am faithful. So who is this God that we worship? What has He done? What is He doing that proves who He is at His core? So shamrocks, eggs, and H2O. Anyone have any idea what those are about? Three in one. Those are examples when we, we say, we use the phrase, well, the Trinity, God three in one, is like a shamrock, which is a three-leaf clover. Or it's like an egg. Or it's like water. I have this nagging question that I've mentioned to some of you, and it deals with the, the essentials of our faith. What is the defining factor? What is the bottom line of what we believe that we simply cannot change or we lose everything? There's a phrase that's often attributed to St. Augustine, and it is, quote, "...in essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. In all things, charity." It's a nice statement, but can you tell me what it means? (laughs) It's a nice statement, and I think if we would dissect it, we would understand what he had in mind. But what would you say is the, the bottom line, the article of faith... That we must hold before all others. Salvation by grace alone. Christ's atoning work on the cross. His bodily resurrection. Add to that list. First Corinthians chapter, Paul writes, For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. It's interesting as I as I looked at that passage in the and in, in the language that Paul wrote in Greek, of first importance can also be translated at the first. Boy, now that opens up a can of worms, a kettle of fish, because now how do what do we do with that? So we tend to think, that, okay, so this is the essentials that that Paul at the first or. First, for sins according to the scriptures that he was buried that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures those are core essential pieces of our faith that we cannot change so of all those essentials as Augustine would call them they're so critical in fact that they cannot be given up without a very without the very nature of and goodness of the gospel being lost. If we lose those, the gospel is lost. So back to my question. Since baptism doesn't save us, nor does belief in the six days of creation, which God said He did, nor a belief in the virgin birth, eating the Lord's Supper or communion, or even belief in the Trinity, if they are not elements, if they are not means of salvation, then why do they matter? How essential are they? It's interesting, in the 300s, there was a man who was born, he became a theologian in Alexandria, Egypt. His name was Athanasius. I think I uh, pronounced that right. But he was a staunch defender of the doctrine of the Trinity and a declared enemy of Arianism. There was a man named Arius who came to prominence. And during that time, the church was wrestling who is God, the Trinity, all the kinds of things they they were working through. So Arianism teaches that, quote, God the Father is the only supreme God and that the Son, Jesus, was His first creation. So the Son is above creation, but He is still a creature. We don't believe that. And neither has the church for, ever since the 300s. But Athanasius said this about the doctrine of the Trinity, and this is a paraphrase. Whoever will be saved... Before all things, it is necessary that he hold to the church's doctrine that we worship one God in Trinity and Trinity in unity or perish everlastingly. It's pretty clear in Athanasius' mind that the Trinity is essential to our salvation. So is the belief of the Trinity, is it essential to our salvation? I'm going to leave that for you to mull over and to think about and maybe discuss. But who is this one God, this only true God that we worship? And maybe you're like a lot of people, you're wondering, why why do we have to get into all these details? Why can't we just go along with just believing in God and and get along with life. It makes life much more simple. So we tend toward easy easy explanations and how do we deal with the Trinity. I mean, after all, the word doesn't appear in the Scripture, so it can't be inspired, right? It's an invention by somebody. And so we come up with these, I'll call them, squishy ideas of what the Trinity is like. Well, it's like a three-leaf clover. That is okay. But when you start to think of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit as an egg, it becomes... This doesn't sit right, does it? Or the three parts of water. You know, you have liquid, you have vapor, and you have ice. I mean, they're squishy at best. So maybe if there's one thing that you remember this morning about the Trinity... When we start to, the Trinity is like, just stop it. Just don't even go there. Never say the words, the Trinity is like. Now why do I say that? I think Carl's favorite verse of any song that we sing was one by Isaac Watts. And this is the last line of that song. Holy Father, Holy Son, Holy Spirit, three we name Thee. Though in essence only one, undivided God we claim Thee. And adoring, bend the knee while we own the mystery. He would mention that often. The, while we own the mystery. Let's get used to it. We can't fully understand it it's beyond us it's outside of our realm of understanding as creatures Isaac Watts understood that a complete understanding is beyond We we can't comprehend fully we embrace it we believe it and we humbly adore our God for who he is so who is God And I think when we understand this, we will better understand the importance of the doctrine of the Trinity. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1 declares right from the beginning that God created all things. He spoke them into existence. Heaven and earth. So it would go to reason that He is creator, right? He's not created. He never came into being. He simply has always been. We can't understand that. It's just the way it is, and that's okay. Some have called him the uncaused cause. Clearly, he's the one in charge. Michael Reeves writes, That sounds very reasonable and unobjectionable. But if I start there, with that as my basic view of God, that he is creator and ruler... I will find every inch of my Christianity covered and wasted by the nastiest, toxic fallout. Why? Because he continues, if God's very identity is to be the creator, the ruler, then he needs a creation to rule in order to be who he is. For all his cosmic power, then, this God turns out to be pitifully weak. He needs us. You get the idea? If God is creator primarily, if that's his essence, his core, he can't be that unless he has us. Therefore, he needs us. It's interesting. In all recorded history in the Old Testament, God revealed himself to individual people. He would come and he would speak. He spoke to Adam and Eve in the garden, he walked with them in the cool of the day. He had that kind of a relationship with them before the fall. He spoke with Abraham. He spoke with Isaac. He spoke with Jacob and Joseph and Moses and so on. It's interesting. In Exodus chapter 4, he reveals himself to Moses in a unique way. It's the story of the burning bush. So Moses, he, he's born in Egypt. He grows up in Egypt. He kills an Egyptian. He has to flee. He goes to Midian. He goes to this well, and there's seven girls that come to water their sheep so he helps them and one of those he marries zipporah becomes his wife so he spends his adult his growing up years his adult life in in Midian. and so he's out in the wilderness one day tending this the sheep and he sees this bush that's burning but it's not being burned up so he goes to the bush and god speaks to him from the bush and I'm not going to go through that whole story, but listen to what the Lord said to Moses. He said, when you return to Egypt, and Moses said, wait a minute, return to Egypt? I have no intention to go back to Egypt. I'm a wanted man. God says, when you return to Egypt, that's where you're going, Moses. Just letting you know. See that you perform before Pharaoh all the wonders I have given you the power to do. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then say to Pharaoh, this is what the Lord says, Israel is my firstborn son. And I tell you, let my son go, so he may worship me. But you refuse to let him go, so I will kill your firstborn son. For the first time, God has revealed Himself for who He is at His core, His essence, who He is. Father. And it changes everything. He is not like all other gods who simply cause events. He is Father. A father can't be a father unless he has a child, right? We know that. But just as in order, if for God, He can't be creator unless He has a creation. Therefore, He can't be a father unless He has a child. So that presents a problem. At some point in history, God was not a father. Unless the Son is eternal, as God is. You may recall a few years ago there were several Bible translation organizations that were contemplating removing the phrase son of god from their translations because it was as they targeted Muslims it was offensive to the it's offensive to Muslims to call that god would have a son he would never do that it, it's beyond god god is one he has no children in that aspect they have this mindset and they can't overcome it so the idea was Let's just remove Son of God from the translation and everything's fine. Except it's not, because it changes who God is. You do that and you destroy the central identity of God as Father. Although the Old Testament refers to God as Father sparingly and generally as distant, holy, and majestic, separate from us and beyond us, which of course is true, Paul writes in Galatians chapter 3 that the law, the law that God gave to the children of Israel, His firstborn son, that law was given as a guardian, a custodian. another word as a disciplinarian. And it's interesting, the picture that Paul gives, the wording that he uses, it's of a, it's of a young man who has a guardian, usually it was a slave, who went with that boy, that young man, everywhere they went to make sure that they did what they were supposed to do and didn't do what they weren't supposed to do. Paul uses that in reference to the law of God. Not as a teacher. That slave, that guardian didn't teach him anything. They just kept him on the right path. It's almost like God was forcing the children of Israel, His Son, to keep the law... Under threat of punishment, Paul says, until Christ, until the Son of God came to this earth. The law had an identifying and essential purpose in keeping God's sons, His children, the Israelites, on the right path until the fulfillment came in Christ. So as we read through the Old Testament, the law was was designed as that to keep them the way they were supposed to go. If they veered off, God would punish. Them. you need to get you need to obey, obey. It was that, that was the picture. But things changed when the Son of God came to earth, took on human flesh. He became the fulfillment of that law. It is humbling as we read through that. And it shows that God has this great desire for His children to walk in His ways. We know how it is as parents. It just thrills us when we see our children thriving in the Lord. There's nothing like it. But it's interesting, in the New Testament, Jesus, the eternal Son of God, God in the flesh, gives us a strikingly clear emphasis of God as Father, both as His Father and our Father. In John chapter 20, verse 17, and in Mark 14, Jesus uses the term Abba, Father. We've heard of that. That term Abba, and some have translated it Daddy, and that's, that was a way somebody took that word and tried to describe what it was. And we may use the word dad or, or papa. But what it does is it, it. the purpose of it is to show this close relationship that Jesus had with the Father, but that He wants to have with us as well. We are children as well. We are children of God if we've chosen to follow Him, to repent and, and follow Jesus. What's amazing in John chapter 20 is Jesus is telling His disciples that he's going back to the Father. He's leaving them. He says, to my Father and to your Father. You see that connection he's bringing? Because Jesus came from God. He is our God, but he is our Father. That's a close, that's a relationship, we call that. We know that. When the disciples asked Jesus to teach them how to pray, to How do we address God when we pray? Because that's what rabbis did. They would teach their disciples a prayer, I understand. So he doesn't begin the prayer. When, When you pray, say, Almighty God or Holy Father. Well, I gave it away. He said, Our Father. Call Him Father. Remember, He loves you as a father loves you. So God is first... And foremost, Father. Now, some may argue that no, God is first and foremost love. In fact, John writes that in 1 John 4, verses 7, 7 through 9. John writes, Dear friends, let us love one another because love is from God, and everyone who loves has been fathered by God. That's an interesting translation. And knows God, we have become his children. The person who does not love does not know God because God is love. God doesn't, He shows love, but it's more than just, he's, he's more than just lovingly loving. He is love. He's the essence of love. He's the picture of love. When you look at the dictionary and you see love, you see God's picture there. I mean, don't you can't do that, of course, but that's the idea. But we need to be careful. Just because God is love, it does not equal. You can't flip that over and say, well, then that makes love is God. No, 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 no. Can't do that. John also says that God is light. That doesn't mean light is God. So you can't reverse it. That's not equal. God is love. And that is shown by Him being Father. He is revealed to us in that way. By this, the love of God is revealed to us. How do we know that? And that God has sent His only, one and only Son into the world so that we may live through Him. We see the love of God the Father and the proof of that is the Lord Jesus when He came to this earth as God's Son, as our sacrifice. God cannot love unless there is someone or something to love. But as eternal Father, He loved the eternal Son through the eternal Spirit for all eternity past. God did not at some point become Father. He did not at some point become love. He always was. Because He has the Godhead, the Trinity, which I can't define, has always been. When we understand God as Father, it changes everything, how we view the world and how we view ourselves. This is Father's Day, as we know. And I want to close by encouraging you, dads and myself included, we as dads and fathers, we don't get everything right, do we? We know that. We feel it daily. Stewart used the word weight. There's a weight that comes with being a dad and a father. We know we could have done better. We know we can do better. And many of our own fathers felt exactly the same. Many of you have a father that wasn't a good father. Didn't do what God has designed fathers to do or be. But thankfully, we all have a father, a heavenly father that is absolutely perfect in all his ways. And he is a God who is intimately concerned about Monday morning at 7 o'clock Monday morning at 8 o'clock, and every time beyond that. He is very involved in our lives. But do we think of Him that way? On those bad days, when we feel as fathers like we're just lost in the crowd, we're unimportant, unnecessary, when we feel like our efforts are going nowhere, when we feel alone, it's at those times when we need to remember that God is my Father. He is your Father. And He said through Jesus the Son, before Jesus left this earth, He told His disciples, and He tells us, He said, I will ask the Father, and He will give you another helper. And, Dads, don't we need all the help we can get? We do to help you and to be with you forever. The Spirit of Truth. God's Holy Spirit is going to come. He came. He's here now. You know Him for He lives with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Before long the world will not see me anymore but you will see me because I live you also will live. On that day, you will realize that I am in the Father and you are in Me and I am in you. Isn't that wonderful news? We're not here all alone. We're not orphans. We're not trying to figure it out ourselves. God our Father loves each of us beyond what we can even imagine. And he has called us to go and do likewise. I love the old song that Don Francisco sang, speaking of God as our Father, there is nothing that you and I together can't handle. I may not feel like that on Monday morning, but it's true. God, our Father, and us working with him, following him in his ways, loving him, him loving us, we can handle everything doesn't matter what it is amen let's stand dear father we thank you this morning that again we've been reminded of who you are you are the god of The universe, You created everything. You spoke everything into existence. You keep everything running. You give us the breath that we breathe. But Father, You are our Father. You love us in ways that we can't imagine. And for that, we thank You. And Father, we we thank You for... We all had a father, an earthly father, who was part of, who brought us into existence. None of them were perfect. Some of them were really, really good. And some of them were absolutely terrible. But Father, You still love us. You used them. You loved them. And for some reason, they didn't reciprocate. Father, that's okay we can't change that we we don't want to blame them we don't want to to live with that hanging over us but father you have come you've presented yourself as our father you love us you care for us and you want us from this day forward to move forward with you through the work of your spirit that dwells within us as your children to be the dad's to be the children to be the moms, to be the brothers, the sisters, the aunts, the uncles, the cousins, the neighbors, the friends that you want us to be. Loving others, sharing our lives with others, allowing you to use us to love others as you have loved us. Thank you, Father, go with us. May you bless this day. May you bless each of us as we walk in humility before you. In Jesus' name we pray, and all God's people said, Amen. You're dismissed.